Did you think you knew everything about organic gardening? Well, with organic produce on the shelves of all the supermarkets now, maybe it's time for a refresher course. Today, my guest is Doug Hall, Senior Editor of Organic Gardening Magazine, and we're going to start from uh, 101. We're going to go back and talk about what is organic gardening? What is organic gardening, and how can we bring these wonderful organic techniques to our gardens? Clem's Song Sparrow Farm and Nursery grows extraordinary herbaceous perennials, uncommon trees and shrubs, and a selection of luxurious peonies. Song Sparrow Nursery is a proud underwriter of Kendrew's Real Dirt. Songsparrow.com, S-O-N-G-S-P-A-R-R-O-W.com. Hello again and welcome. It's Ken Drews, and you're listening to Kendrew's Real Dirt, The Garden Show. I promised myself I wouldn't complain about the weather here in the Northeast, but I'm going to complain about the weather here in the Northeast. I've been working on a new project, and it caused me to be at the New York Botanical Garden for an entire day in the sun this week. And if you factor in the humidity, they said on the radio it was 105 degrees. It was probably only about 98 96, 97, 98 in the Bronx, New York. Supposed to be an overcast day. They predicted rain. It was not overcast. It was not even cloudy enough. There wasn't a single cloud for me to take a picture. Well, maybe I got a couple of pictures. But I was standing at a garden that was really nice. It's the ladies' border, and it's where they grow plants from another zone. Um, The New York Botanical Garden is kind of in a medium zone seven, maybe a cold zone seven, but the ladies' border is almost zone eight. It's a warm zone seven, and there's all sorts of things there that people say, you can't grow that here, you can't grow that here, like stachyurus, a a wonderful shrub with dripping panicles of flowers and then dripping panicles of little round fruits. Uh, Eucomus, the pineapple lily, that's not supposed to be hardy, but there it is, blooming wonderfully. Um, let's see. Brallo, one of the so-called wood lilies we talked about on last week's show, blooming and fruiting on these wonderful wands of aloe-like flowers. And they were all doing very well. They loved the heat. I did not love the heat or the sun. And, uh, someone asked me, how are you doing? How are you holding up? And I was about 11 o'clock in the morning and I said, oh, I'm fine. And then about five minutes later, I started not feeling too fine. And I was drinking water, but you have to really remember if you're in the sun, you have to cover your head. You have to force those fluids. I was drinking water, but it was just too much sun, too much sun. Then I ate some food and I felt a little stranger, but uh, a little better. And then I felt better still. But when I got in the car uh, and started to drive and got out of the sun, I felt a whole lot better. I really, I should have jumped into a cold shower. But surprisingly or not, the only cold showers at the New York Botanical Garden are the sprinklers. And I actually did walk through a sprinkler. I should have stood there for a while. So I ended up talking about the summer again and the heat But today, uh, we're going to have a little refresher course in organic gardening. We talk about sustainability all the time, but we take organic a little bit for granted. So many of us are using organic practices, but what is it? Where where does it come from? What is organic gardening? Today's guest, Doug Hall, is going to tell us all about it in just about a second. I'm speaking with Doug Hall, Senior Editor of Organic Gardening Magazine. Hello, Doug. I can. 
it's it's nice to speak with you today and uh i thought maybe it was time for us to define organic gardening again and i'm not just talking about the magazine but you know organic gardening in general but before i before you even answer that question do you know offhand how long organic gardening magazine has been around yes uh j.i rodale our founder uh launched the magazine in 1942 and it has continued every ever since then under uh, not always under the same name occasionally it was called organic gardening and farming or organic farming and gardening um, now we've sort of settled into the organic gardening name but that's quite a few years for a magazine to be around it's a yes there are some of those old magazines around but it's especially amazing for a magazine that's been well for years on the fringe in a way uh, even though a lot of what is in the magazine are things that farmers have used for centuries. <laughs> That's but, true. That's true. Originally, it was something of a cult following that the magazine had. And, and uh, I, I think there was a perception among some uh, established gardeners and cooperative extension agents that it really was the lunatic fringe. Nowadays, our content has not changed or our message has not changed, but uh, it's become much more mainstream and much more accepted. I think J.I. would be very proud. I think it's exciting, very exciting. It certainly took long enough, that's for sure. It took too long, that's true. But uh, the all those synthetic things that we, we meaning Americans, uh, were told were wonderful and have changed everything about food, especially in the United States, well, all over the world, uh, we're starting to realize that those things are not good for us in the even in the long run and here we are in the short term right now uh, seeing the effects of a lot of synthetic chemicals i'm trying not to uh, steal your thunder because you're about to tell me about organic gardening well the the simple response to the question what is organic gardening is uh, the elimination of, of chemicals from the process from the process of gardening you eliminate the chemical pesticides and the chemical fertilizers uh, but, but really, there's a lot more to it than that. There's a philosophy behind it that has to do with following the lead of nature and mimicking the, uh, the techniques that nature does uh, to grow plants and to keep them healthy and thriving. Um, a, a good example of that is the way nature recycles nutrients through the soil. Uh, if, if, you, if you choose a, uh, an ecosystem like a, a woodland, a, a forest ecosystem, the leaves fall to the ground where they, uh, uh, soil microbes work to decompose them. The, the nutrients, uh, the plant nutrients that are within those leaves and, and twigs uh, then break down very gradually, very slowly, and are released to the soil where they once again become available to plant roots. Uh, th that process of cycling nutrients through an ecosystem is a very slow and gradual process, and there's never, there's always a stockpile of nutrients, but there's never an overabundance. Um, you can contrast that with the uh, chemical style of agriculture, where uh, fertilizers are applied to the soil in 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 a large dose. And especially the, the water-soluble fertilizers uh, that farmers and many gardeners use, uh, they tend to overdose the soil. And in the process, they are uh, they're creating an environment that is hostile to the soil microbes that we really need to be encouraging 
um, the, the plant roots cannot take up uh, all of the uh, nutrients that, uh, that are in one single app application of fertilizer, of chemical fertilizer. And so the rest tends to either uh, leach through the soil or, or, it's, uh, uh, or, or washes off. And either of those alternatives is not good for the environment. It gets into the groundwater, and we've seen so many ponds turn bright green near developments where lawn chemicals are used, things like that. Right, right. And then uh, the uh, the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico, which is basically an area where um, groundwater or uh, surface water from uh, the Midwest, <clears throat> excuse me, farms in the Midwest, uh, ends up in a, a sort of puddling in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, they get the blooms of algae, and it uh, basically kills kills all the uh, fish fish life in the in that part of the Gulf. Well, and you're talking mostly about uh, synthetic fertilizers and other kinds of chemicals, but it even goes all the way organic gardening. You consider things like erosion control and and other things that, as you said, nature does that nature has always done. So is one of the goals of the organic gardener to speed up the process that happens in nature? Not necessarily speed up. Um, you're right. You're right. As gardeners, we really should be good stewards of, of the land and of nature. We should be uh, preserving the abundance uh, that nature has given us uh, and, and not necessarily working uh, against uh, the way nature would, uh, would handle gardening. Um, uh, soil, soil really is our greatest asset, so it is uh, to our benefit to preserve it and uh, continue to improve it so, uh, um, so we can continue to, uh, to harvest and, and to have successful gardens. Well, that makes me think of uh, an article in the current issue of the magazine. Uh, there's a quote in, in an article on soil uh, from, the, I guess, from a farmer. The soil is like a farmer's bank. You've got to keep making deposits into it all the time. If you withdraw from it until it's empty, you'll be out of business. That's true. And for those of us who grow vegetables, you are making withdrawals on a regular basis. Anytime you harvest your tomatoes or your sweet corn, you, you are removing nutrients from the natural cycle. And so then you have to find a way to replenish those nutrients. Uh, the obvious way for an organic gardener is with compost. Uh, uh, we all have uh, uh, compost piles in our backyards where uh, yard waste and uh, leaves and uh, garden debris go to, uh, to be broken down. Um, if, if you are harvesting a lot of fruits and vegetables from your uh, from your garden, then it's, it's, it's no longer a closed loop. You have to find uh, additional inputs of, of nutrients to, to keep the soil healthy. Uh, one way is to bring in uh, animal manures, which are high in, uh, high in nitrogen and uh, contain a lot of minerals and micronutrients that are good for plants. Uh, depending on how fresh the manure is, you probably would want to put it into the compost pile rather than apply it directly in the garden. Um, for people who don't necessarily have access to uh, farms where they could get uh, fresh manure, uh, you can use uh, nitrogen sources like uh, blood meal or alfalfa meal. Uh, products that are organic uh, contain a, a level of slow-release nitrogen or an amount of slow-release nitrogen and, and will help to replenish the soil to uh, accommodate for the uh, nutrients that are lost when 
uh, vegetables are harvested. I'm speaking with Doug Hall, who is the senior editor of Organic Gardening Magazine, and we're talking about organic gardening. And now we're talking about replenishing some of the nutrients that we take out when we harvest things from the soil and that we want to put back. And maybe when we come back, you could talk a little bit about cover crops. You're listening to Ken Drew's Real Dirt, The Garden Show. I'll be right back. Clem Song Sparrow Farm and Nursery grows extraordinary herbaceous perennials, uncommon trees and shrubs, and a selection of luxurious peonies. Song Sparrow Nursery is a proud underwriter of Kendrew's Real Dirt. Songsparrow.com, S-O-N-G-S-P-A-R-R-O-W.com. Thank you for staying with us. It's Ken Drews, and you're listening to Kendrew's Real Dirt, The Garden Show. My guest today is Doug Hall, senior editor of Organic Gardening Magazine, one of the Rodale publications. And uh, a lot of you recognize the name Organic Gardening Magazine because it's been around... Since 1942. 1942, wow. yeah. So uh, you were talking about uh, replenishing the nutrients in the soil, and uh, you, you talked about alfalfa meal, but uh, can you also, well, I know you can plant cover crops. How does how does that work? Uh, cover crops are an excellent way to add organic matter to the soil, no matter what kind of soil you're gardening on, whether it's heavy in clay or whether it's very sandy. Uh, adding organic matter is, is a good way to increase its uh, nutrient holding capacity, its, its ability to uh, store and hold moisture and nutrients, and as well as to uh, make it more porous and uh, easier for roots, uh, plant roots, to uh, to work their way through. Well, maybe tell me what a cover crop is. A cover crop would be uh, uh, a either a grain or a legume that you are planting in land that would otherwise be fallow. Uh, and letting it uh, grow for a few weeks or months or sometimes over the course of the winter. And then rather than harvesting anything from it, you, you just turn the cover crop under. So uh, both the roots and the top growth of the cover crop then uh, break down in the soil and add organic matter. Uh, buckwheat and ryegrass and vetch are some of the common um, cover crops that are planted. Uh, buckwheat is a good summer cover crop because it grows very quickly and it produces a lot of both top growth and, and root growth. Uh, you can, uh, if you have a, an area of a vegetable garden where uh, you've harvested the spring crops but you're not ready to put anything in for fall yet, uh, you can put in for about uh, six to eight weeks, you can have buckwheat growing in that place. And rather than just have uh, an empty spot in the garden and soil exposed to the elements, uh, you're actually doing something that's good for the soil. So you don't really need acres to do this. You can do it on almost any scale, I, I guess. Yes. Uh, uh, one small raised bed um, at, in our test plots at the Rodale Farm, we have circular test plots. Each one is about seven feet across. And so uh, typically each, each circle in that test garden is planted to a different crop or perhaps two different crops. And so often in between crops, we will plant a cover crop and also over the winter rather than leave that uh, soil exposed to the elements in the winter. It's always a good idea to have either mulch covering bare soil or 
or uh, to grow a cover crop of some sort. Um, bare soil is just an invitation for both weeds and erosion. Mm. So it's good to avoid. So uh, when you, you say through the winter, so there are some cover crops that grow into the cold season? Yes, yes, depending on where you live. Of course, in, in the far north, in zones five, four, three, four, and five, uh, probably you'll want to plant your winter cover crop in mid-fall so you get some good top growth before heavy freezes. And then the cover crop may, uh, it may turn brown in the winter, but it's still there. It's still there with its roots knitting that soil together and uh, protecting it from erosion. Now, do any of these cover crops ever become weed problems, or can they self-sow? They can. Buckwheat is one that I would not allow to go to seed, uh, because buckwheat can become a weed problem if it does go to seed. Uh, it, that's easy to prevent, though. Uh, when you see it bloom, that means it's time to, uh, to till the soil and turn it under. Uh, there have been times when I've had buckwheat as a summer cover crop, and I, I notice it's starting to form those little white flowers, and, and maybe I'm not ready to... To, uh, uh, to turn it under yet, so I just take the head shears out and uh, cut it back about halfway, and uh, that that way it can continue to grow without the potential of uh, allowing it to go to seed. And and the price to add all this juicy, wonderful stuff to the soil is negligible. It's really not much. The price of a bag of seeds, yeah, for yeah, uh, many agricultural uh, supply stores uh, carry cover crop seeds, uh, barley and oats and rye grass are often uh, the sorts of seeds that would be used by farmers growing grain, but on a, on a much smaller scale, they're uh, sold in one and two pound bags for use by gardeners as cover crops. Uh, if you don't live in a place where you have access to an agricultural su uh, supply store or a farm supply store, then you can order the mail order. A lot of uh, mail order organic seed companies also sell cover crop seeds. Can you think of uh, some simple, quick tips for that are organic that kind of replace things that gardeners might do? Just some, maybe some funny things, some fun things that are different. Okay. That's a tough <laughs> question, Ken. Put me on the spot. Put you um, on the spot. Well, it... For, for gardeners who are new to organic ways, the, the problems they tend to have are with pests. Mm -hmm. And they know that they need to resist that urge to buy a product and spray it on their plants. Uh, but on the other hand, you don't want to just stand back and watch your crop be devastated by an insect. So what do you do? Um, I was reading somewhere recently, and I, I can't recall where I read this or who it was who said it, but uh, she wrote that the best advice she had ever been given as a gardener was when, you, when an insect shows up in your, in your garden, wait two weeks. Don't immediately go out and spray it. Now, if it's something like a tomato hornworm that you can pick off the plant or Japanese beetles that you can flick into a jar of suds, suzzy water, then yeah, by all means do that. But if it's something like cucumber beetles, maybe it's best to wait and let the beneficial insects take care of it. Mm. Because even the, even the organic sprays like neem oil or, or uh, insecticidal soaps, they can also kill the beneficial insects. And you really don't want to do that. You want to do everything you can to encourage uh, uh, beneficial insects being in your garden. 
so sometimes it's best to just stand back and let nature take care of, of those sorts of problems. Uh, beneficial insects are really a, um, something that is, it's always a, a surprise to people who are new to organic gardening that there are predatory insects that will take care of the pests if they just allow that to happen. Uh, and you can encourage beneficial insects by having a, a diversity of plants, a, a variety of, especially flowering plants. Uh, things, uh, herbs especially, tend to attract uh, beneficial insects. Uh, diversity is, is really a, a valuable trick to any organic gardener. Uh, nature does not plant in monocultures on its own, and uh, monocultures where you've got a vast sweep of all the same thing, they tend to have more pr insect problems to begin with. So just by planting a, a broad variety of both edible and ornamental plants in your garden, you're taking a big step toward preventing some of the insect problems to begin with. And then another very valuable tool of organic gardeners is crop rotation. And basically, the, the, that rule says you don't plant the same vegetable crop in the same place two years in a row. Some gardeners have very elaborate five-year rotations. Really, if you can just avoid planting, say, your, your tomatoes, which tend to be one of the more disease-prone vegetable crops, if you avoid planting those in the same place for um, three years, you know, if you wait mm -hmm. three years before returning to the, uh, to the original spot where you had tomatoes, uh, that also helps to reduce the, uh, some of the wilts and the uh, uh, fungal uh, disease problems that are soil-borne. That makes me think of another old Rodale magazine, Prevention. That's right. So it's prevention, been almost as long as, as organic gardening. Yeah, prevention and sustainability, because that's the two things you just talked about. And uh, I know in in each issue of the magazine, food gets the central focus. Growing food, and lately even eating food, and ways to eat food, and ways to prepare food. And in the current issue, uh, I think it's the August September issue, you have Emeril Lagasse sharing some of his recipes. That's right. Um, why, why grow all these wonderful food crops if you aren't going to eat them and enjoy them in creative ways? Um, another example from the uh, August-September issue is our cover story on garlic. And if the only type of garlic you've uh, consumed is grocery store garlic, uh, you've really limited yourself to a single flavor in a, a, a crop that really offers a, a really a wide variety of different flavors, uh, some more pungent than others, some more sweet than others. Uh, it's, it's really surprising uh, the different, the array of flavors that are available in different varieties of garlic. Uh, the one that we uh, buy at the grocery store is, uh, it tends to be the one that is marketed because it's the one that is easiest to store. It yeah. has the longest shelf life. And if if you look at that package of garlic in the grocery store, more often than not, it comes from China. It's not a locally grown um, uh, item. And uh, you can find that information in the current issue of Organic Gardening Magazine and also on the Organic Gardening website, which you can find a link to at kendrewsrealdirt.com. And Doug, I want to thank you so much for being my guest today. Well, I'm thanks, speaking Dan. with, oh, that's great. I've been speaking with Doug Hall, Senior Editor of Organic Gardening Magazine. And Doug, we're going to do it again, okay? <laughs> it's a deal. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye-bye. 
so much that we can learn about organic gardening and always more to learn about organic gardening. And and it was interesting that Doug talked about how it, it really follows nature. I kind of think of it as following early agriculture, but uh, he's right. It is nature. It's just taking cues from the natural environment. The woodland is, he suggested, and, and anywhere, even grasslands where bison used to roam and uh, leave their organic matter behind to enrich the soil. And the plants themselves, like cover crops, enrich the soil as well. The grasses with their very deep roots bring up nutrients from below, break up the clay soil, the hard soil of the prairie. Yeah, it's just like nature. Well, join me again next week for another edition of Ken Drew's Real Dirt, The Garden Show. I'll be here and looking forward to speaking with you again. I hope being joined by another very interesting guest with an interesting bit of news to help us garden better the rest of our lives. See you then.